the average recession going back to the 60s was around 4.5% on that real effective federal funds rate. So now we're still zero. Maybe the Fed has room to continue to tighten and they're not over tightening and there is still room in this cycle as we've pointed out lots of different ways. That's just another way of showing this is an old bull market, old economic cycle, but maybe it has a little more tricks up its sleeve. From LPL Financial, welcome to Market Signals. I'm John Lynch. And I'm Ryan Dietrich. Hello, Ryan. Hey, John. How are you doing today? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing well. Glad to be back for another exciting episode of LPL Market Signals. Let's, Absolutely. Uh, let's let everyone know what's going on in the world. It should be a lot of fun today. Today, we're going to discuss how the market is at new highs currently. Uh, we're going to be mindful of the upcoming midterm elections and discuss briefly how that has oftentimes created excess volatility in the financial markets. Uh, we will also discuss seasonality and how we're entering a very strong period. Certainly want to highlight this week's Fed policy meeting. And finally, we'll emphasize the importance of emerging markets and investors' portfolios. The market's certainly setting the signals now, right? It Hovering is. near record levels. I think it's important that... Uh, you know, we don't, we don't want people to get drunk with success, right, when you think about how the market's done so well. You know, we do have some, uh, what you and I have been cautioning about volatility approaching, midterm elections, uh, typically uh, weigh on investor sentiment. You know, we have a history whereby uh, midterm election years, if you look at the four-year presidential cycle, uh, the midterm election year tends to be the most challenging, right, because uh, Congress typically flips over by 25 seats or so. And market typically takes it on the chin. You've done a great work over the past. I guess we typically see about a 15 or 16 percent drawdown, peak to trough during midterm election years. But the most important thing is 12 months later, the market's Patience. up by 30 or 32 percent, wiping out that loss and then gaining uh, on top of that. So we think that's really important for perspective for investors. Not only do we want to talk about that, but we want to talk about seasonal strength as well. Uh, we certainly got through the period of seasonal weakness. You did a lot of great work in late April, early May, suggesting that uh, February low could actually be the low for the year, even though we tried to test it in April, and the sell in May go away. Didn't necessarily work this time, did it, Ryan? <laughs> no, sell in May go away has not worked. The S&P is up five consecutive months, and you know, hopefully we don't jinx it with this comment, but obviously we're up in September, so that could be up six months in a row. So sell in May go away. As we noted clear back in May, we wrote about why maybe this year you don't want to sell them may go away because the technicals are strong, fundamentals are strong. And sure enough, John, midterm election year, like you said, when you start the S&P 500 above its 200-day moving average during a midterm year, that's one of the strongest six-month cycles out of a four-year cycle. So, you know, when you mix it all together, we looked for a summer rally, and we fortunately had one here. Absolutely. A lot, lot, lot of strong fundamentals underlying that. If you look at GDP growth, you look at consumption, uh, corporate profitability, and even though rates have been rising, uh, Federal Reserve has been talking about higher interest rates going forward, certainly, as well as implementing some uh, tightening policy. Uh, it's really important to recognize that uh, real rates, when you subtract inflation from the federal funds rate, uh, still slightly negative or hovering at zero. So there, that would suggest there is still some room to go. Wouldn't you agree? I think so, John. There's lots of different you know, clocks we can use for when's a recession going to come, and that's a big one. When you take a look at the effective federal funds rate, around 1.9%, inflation's around 2%, we'll call it zero here. 
the average recession going back to the 60s was around 4.5% on that real effective federal funds rate. So now we're still zero. So there, that says to us, as we wrote about on our blog last week, lplresearch.com, maybe the Fed has room to continue to tighten. And they're not over-tightening. And there is still room in this cycle, as we've pointed out lots of different ways. That's just another way of showing this is an old bull market, old economic cycle, but maybe it has a little more tricks up its sleeve. Absolutely. And since this is a podcast, not a video, no one can see Ryan and I crossing our fingers as we're giving all these wonderful fundamental <laughs> uh, 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 advice here. But certainly when you look at fundamentals relative to interest rates, uh, inflation, employment, consumption, business confidence, consumer confidence, there is a lot of momentum here. But we must be mindful with the upcoming midterms. And let's let's talk a little, right. delve a little deeper into, uh, it's not necessarily who's in the White House or who's in Congress, but it's the composition, correct? Wouldn't you agree? Uh, absolutely, John. You know, when you look back in history, one of the, first off, one of the most popular questions we've received at LPR Research, I'd say the last three months, has been what'll happen if Republicans lose control of Congress? They have the Senate, they have the House, they obviously have the presidency. What does it mean? And again, we're not making a prediction here. Most people in Washington, John, hopefully you can back me up here, seem to think Republicans are going to lose the House. We're not making a call there. But should that happen, then you have that divided Congress. And history says, John, you can take it from here for a second, split Washington tends to do quite well, actually. Absolutely. And I think and I think listeners need to uh, appreciate also, um, you know, this is it's. We, we must be mindful of the headlines here because you're absolutely right. Uh, when we look at the composition of government, you know, many, many investors are familiar with the term that uh, gridlock is good. You know, greed is good also, right, was the old uh, Wall right. Street movie. You know, we're not advocates that of that, that that's the case. But we do believe that gridlock is good to the degree that you have uh, really implementing what the founding fathers had in mind with, you know, checks and balances. And, uh, you know, the work we've done at LPL Research has certainly shown that uh, a divided government can benefit investors. And why don't you go a little deeper into that, Ryan? Yeah. So, John, when we do, when we took a look at this, going back to 1950, when you have that gridlock with the Republican president, the S&P 500 is actually higher during those years, 15 0.7% on average, which is by far the best if you have Republican in power um, of Congress or Democrats in power of Congress with that Republican president. Those are much weaker. And now on the flip side, I will note, though, the strongest type of scenario we have is when you have a Republican Congress and a Democratic president. That's up around 18.3%. And split when you have a Democratic president and then a split um, House and Congress, that comes in an impressive 15.9%. But on the Republican side, when you have a Republican president, the best scenario out of the three, sure enough, is a split Congress up 15.7% on average. Uh, that's uh, the calendar year uh, for, for the S&P. So that could be what we maybe are looking at here. Yeah, and that's something to keep in mind also, because you have that presidential election cycle. So that data backs up our bullish forecast for 2019 as we're still looking at at least 10% profit growth and for the market to move consistent with profitability. We're not really looking for, you know, a major expansion in PE multiples next year. You know, we're 10, 11 years into this thing at that point, right? right. Uh, but nonetheless, we have the positive fundamentals that I highlighted. We had the historical data to back us up. But we also have an environment where 
real rates are still zero. I mean, that is unprecedented that that can be the launching pad going into 2019. People are so concerned uh, about the extent of the length of this expansion. You know, we've done a lot of work recently. Is it a, is it a 10-year bull? Is it a 20-year right. bull? Uh, when did stocks start outperforming bonds? When did uh, uh, the st- stocks hit a new high? It took 2013 was really the, the first new high. So it can be argued it's only a five-year bull as opposed to... And I've seen some interesting charts, stocks relative to gold. If you price stocks in gold, we're still not at an all-time high. So there's different ways you can look at these things. I'm fully aware of kind of some fun ways. But, you know, John, one data point that came out last week that we've talked a lot about, and it's one of our favorites, is one of our five forecasters uh, for potentially forecasting a recession, is the leading economic indicators, better known as the LEI. It That's came right. in last week. Now, what I like about this one, it's 10 different components. It's one of the few economic data points, though, that's more forward-looking. Let's be honest. A lot of economic data is more backward-looking. Backward looking. The dismal science, Exactly. Right? And we've studied this one, and this is why we like it. Long story short, a year over year, up 6.4%. Very strong. 27 months in a row without a drop in the LAI. Longest streak since the mid-80s. Mm-hmm. So we have a really strong economy. What really matters, though, is year over year, when that has gone negative, every single recession back to the 1970s, we saw a recession within three to nine months later when that was negative year over year. It's still positive 6.4%, which is very, very strong. Again, just one indicator, but another sign that, yes, this cycle really has a lot of strength to it and potentially um, has more room to go. In addition to LEI, that's consistent with a lot of the other work we did, right, relative to you know the yield curve flattening, going from 50 basis points to zero historically has taken almost two years, and then going from zero to recession has taken almost another two years. So that's about a four-year process. Whether or not profits peaked last quarter or this quarter really doesn't matter because if you think about the four-year average that it takes for profits to peak before the economy slips into recession, that also is consistent. And then you look at the strength in manufacturing. Uh, we've seen the best manufacturing data in 12, 13 years these last six or seven months. And uh, when we, we look back historically, we found that a peak in manufacturing takes about four years. And also, you know, just even talking about the Fed meeting this week, wage growth has to approach four or four and a half percent before the Fed really feels threatened by um, a persistent th- threat of pricing pressure. And we've not yet seen that, even though we have the lowest unemployment rate in decades. We're not really seeing wages participate, are we? No, we're not. You mentioned wage growth. I believe the recent number is 2.9%. At every recession, going back, I think it's four or five cycles, we saw wage growth up over 4%. So it's just another way of kind of showing that, yes, there are those concerns. We can get get into some of those. But the underlying fundamentals, the underlying pinnings that have gotten us to where we are, which, again, is right at pretty much new all-time highs across the board here in the U.S., are really still in play. Now, John, one other thing I want to talk about um, that's important. So this is a midterm year. Obviously, midterm years historically do see a lot of volatility. I mean, this year we saw two 10% corrections the first half of the year, so a lot of volatility there. But if you take a look at the calendar, the fourth quarter – of a midterm year, so in other words, the, the what's going to start off here in about a week when we get to October, is one of the strongest quarterly returns out of the four-year presidential cycle. The first quarter and second quarter of next year, the third year, the pre-election year, I guess we'll call it, are also two of the strongest. So you've got three of the strongest quarters in a row historically looking at the four-year presidential cycle coming up right now. Now, you could say maybe a lot of these gains, what happened last year and so far this year, maybe it's some front-ended. So my take there would just be don't expect a new bear market likely to start with all the things we just laid out, with the fact that the calendar really is going to be the bull's friend over the next nine months or so. Yeah, it it certainly would appear to be the case, uh, but we get paid to worry. 
and we have to look at stuff that could go wrong, right? So the midterm election is one mm -hmm. area. Uh, obviously, a lot of upsetting geopolitical developments going on. We've got the UN meeting this week. Hopefully, there'll be some clarity and alignment on the world leaders. Uh, but when you look at the basic fundamentals driving the market right now, we're hard-pressed to see. And I'm curious to see. I wish I could be a fly on the wall at the Fed meeting this week, right? What do you, what do you think the, the outcome of that meeting will be? That's right, John. So maybe we'll start the lightning round right now with uh, four quick questions. And the Fed, obviously, I believe is probably the big event this week, at least as of this second. So the Fed funds rate is expected to be increased 25 basis points. I think it's a 98% chance on Wednesday. So let's just hope that they do and don't cause too much trouble there. That'll take the Fed's funds rate up to between two and two and a quarter. And that would be actually the eighth rate hike so far this rate cycle. And we took a look back, and we mentioned this over the past year or so in LP Research. When you look at how many rate hikes there are before recessions, we found an average of about 17. The least ever was mm -hmm. eight. So we are just kind of at the low end. And again, a lot of this economic data we just laid out, we don't think there's a recession coming. But what's going to be interesting is kind of, you know, what they say about the future, right? Uh, the chance of a December rate hike is much higher than it was a couple months ago. The inflation data is still pretty low, like we said. So that's kind of where we're in the camp that maybe it's not as likely as what the street thinks. But at the same time, you know, one of the, our big worries, John, maybe you can dive into this a little bit. You know, could there be a policy mistake? Could the Fed do too many rate hikes and get us into that dreaded inverted yield curve, which we talked about last week, is not always the worry that it sounds like. At the same time, nine of the last nine recessions did take place after an inverted yield curve. So what do you think about a policy mistake? How, how worried should investors be here? Yeah, I think investors, well, first and foremost, uh, the se average 17 rate hikes, we've never lifted rates from zero before also. So that's, exactly. that's unprecedented. Right. And the, the likelihood of a policy mistake, um, I'd have to say, is a little less in my mind going forward because, you know, I've joked about uh, Fed Chair Jerome Powell not being burdened by the expectations of having a PhD in economics. You know, his career, he's been more of a market guy, so he's not necessarily... Uh, tied down by the econometric forecasting models. You know, he very much has a, a great deal of market savvy given his background. And while Fed watchers are comfortable with the fact that the Fed has two mandates, uh, one focusing on inflation, the other focusing on employment, be mindful also that inflation, yes, is in that 2% range. But I, I get so concerned when I see headlines suggesting that 2% is the target. Well, 2% is the target for price stability. 2% is not the target for runaway inflation. I think that's something our investors need to keep in mind. But back to uh, the market savvy nature, if you will, of the approach I believe uh, Jerome Powell is taking at the Federal Reserve is that he's paying attention to jobs and inflation, certainly, but he's also mindful of uh, financial market stability, which is not an official mandate. But he also has to be mindful of the currency. Uh, Turkey caused a great deal of upset in the markets maybe five or six weeks ago. And I think Turkey is a good example of the globalization and the interconnectivity of the financial markets because the dollar is the global currency. Uh, even with the euro and everything else out there, uh, the dollar still is uh, the, the major global currency. And consequently, when you look at the emerging space, the emerging markets make up, what, six billion consumers. Uh, they've taken out three and a half or four trillion in dollar-denominated debt in the emerging space over the last decade. You know, our rates can't get so high, which would allow our dollar to get so strong, which would cause those emerging currencies to get so weak they couldn't service interest payments on, on, uh, on that debt. So I think that's something he's mindful of, whether or not it's in there. 
official mandate. That's something he has to pay attention to. And finally, uh, I think he has to be mindful of more of the humanitarian, you know, humanitarian nature of it. You know, food and energy. You know, food represents maybe ten percent of. Uh, consumer pricing measures in the West, but in the East, food represents maybe a third. So Powell can't place emerging market central banks in a position where they're jacking up interest rates to support their currencies so their people can afford to eat. Uh, so I, I think, you know, September's obviously a lot. I think 98% forecast is pretty legit. Uh, December, given the strength of second and third quarter GDP, is probably a lock. But going into 19, that's why these dot plots are going to be very important. It'll be very interesting to see how they try to guide the markets to uh, a less aggressive stance for those reasons. Great points there, John. So we'll, I'll, I'll wrap it up with this. On Friday, the other big event this week is the PC, Personal Consumption Expenditures, which is a, the Fed's popular inflation gauge. And they say it's the the one that the Fed monitors the most, and that came in at 2% uh, last month. So we'll, we'll we'll talk more about that probably next week with, with how that matters. We'll write about it in some of our blogs and research reports that we do. Uh, but be on the lookout to close out the week on Friday with some important inflation data. But, John, you kind of already mentioned this. So let's go to the next question here. Emerging markets. Mm-hmm. The U.S. dollar the last couple of weeks has actually started to trend lower. Now, mm-hmm. talk to 10 people, get 10 answers why. As an old-school option trader, I like to look at the way markets are positioned. One of the most popular trades three weeks ago, right the second, was a long, stronger U.S. dollar. Well, sure enough, sometimes those things go the other way. And what's happened as the U.S. dollars gently started to go lower the last few weeks, emerging markets have really turned around. China just had one of its best weeks in a long time last week. With And who would have said a week ago there were tariffs that just came out on China? Everyone was worried. And sure enough, what happened? Well, China actually had its best week in years. Right. Uh, nonetheless, in the face of that, and why was it? Well, it wasn't as bad as expected. So what do you think? Emerging markets, an area we do like it started the bounce here we've seen bounces before in emerging markets sure. and then they rip right back lower do you think this is maybe um a little more significant maybe a little more room to the upside in the emerging markets here the fourth quarter of this year we've seen a few things that would support that certainly uh, the worst of the tariff uh fears have failed to surface correct so uh or the reality has, fa- has failed to surface so i think that's done something the dollar gave up some of its gains uh, you mentioned that China bounced off a low, gained four or four and a half percent last week. Transportation stocks, you know, for Dow theorists out there, the Dow that's transports right. is matching the Dow's record. So that's positive from a technical standpoint. Watching what copper has done. Copper has bounced. You know, many of our listeners may be familiar with the term Dr. Copper. And copper is known as a Ph.D. in economic forecasting because as copper goes, so goes the global economy. And that bodes very, very well for uh, the export-driven manufacturing jobs juggernauts that are many of the, that comprise many of the emerging market economies. All right. Now, I think something else that's important to remember to remind our listeners of pullbacks are normal in emerging markets. You go oh, yeah. back the last 15 years, 11 of those years saw at least a 15% correction from peak to trough. We just had a 20% bear market in emerging markets about two and a half weeks ago. And as we noted at that time, it's scary. It feels uncomfortable. But in a lot of those cases, those years actually finish green. Now, there might not be enough time this year for EM to turn green, but the bottom line is a 20% correction. It feels uncomfortable and scary, but in the emerging markets, it's perfectly normal. And we saw them in 2015 and 16. One major difference between then and now, though, earnings are expanding. We're in a global earnings recession back then, not so much now. Now, John, I will jump in. Mention Dow Theory. The Dow made new all-time high last week, Mm -hmm. first one since late January. Remember, late January of uh, this year. Small caps making new all-time highs. NASDAQ has. Russell Russell 2, which is small caps. uh, S&P 500 has. So Dow kind of finally joined the party, we'll say. I've got some numbers here. 
I took a look when you have at least eight months without a new all-time high on the Dow, like we just did. Happened 15 times since 1950. Six months later, the Dow was higher 13 of those times. A year later, higher 12 of those times. And the returns six and 12 months later are significantly better than your average returns. In other words, this nice consolidation that we just had on the Dow without new highs almost gave the market time to catch its breath after that 15-month win streak that we had coming in earlier this year. And the history would, this is one way to look at it. History would say maybe, you know, the next six to 12 months could actually continue to be strong, maybe even better gains. The fact that the Dow hasn't made a new high for eight months. What do you think? Uh, well, I think that's great analysis. And I think it just really speaks to the adage never short a dull market, right? Because even though it hadn't been exciting since January 26, uh, it certainly has been exciting depending on your definition of excitement, exactly. given some of the volatility we experienced, right, in, uh, in uh, February and then again in early April. I want every listener to think about 6 billion people in emerging markets. Now I want you to multiply 6 billion times anything, and you're going to get a big number. So anytime emerging sales off, I want you to think about that because I think that's the most important thing for long-term investors. No, that's, I'm trying to think of a way to make six billion times anything small, and I really can't come up with any. Hard number. to do it, right? And it, I'll, I'll finish with this, John, and let you close it out. The one stat that I heard in Barron's, which always I just like to remind people of this: it's going to be a billion cell phones, smart cell phones, sold this year. Eighty percent of them are going to be sold in emerging markets. So again, you talk about potential. Isn't that fascinating? There it is. Yeah, absolutely. So I had a lot of fun, John. I'll let you take us home. This was a good one. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Ryan, and thank you everyone for listening. Well, that's it for this episode. Join us next week when we'll continue to analyze and discuss market signals. Stay connected by following us on Twitter, at LPL, or at LPL Research. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. LPL Market Signals is presented and produced by LPL Financial. I'm John Lynch. And I'm Ryan Dietrich. Thanks, everyone. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide or to construed as providing specific investment advice or recommendations for any individual security. Any economic forecast set forth in this podcast may not develop as predicted, and there can be no guarantee the strategies promoted will be successful. All performance reference is historical and is no guarantee of future results. Investing involves risks, including potential loss of principal. No investment strategy or risk management technique can guarantee return or eliminate risk in all market environments. All information referenced in the podcast is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. This research material was prepared by LPL Financial, LLC, securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA, and SIPC. To the extent you are receiving investment advice from a separately registered independent investment advisor, please note that LPL Financial is not an affiliate of and makes no representation with respect to such entity. The investment products sold through LPL Financial are not insured deposits and are not FDIC, NCUA insured. These products are not bank credit union obligations and are not endorsed, recommended, or guaranteed by any bank, credit union, or any government agency. The value of this investment may fluctuate. The return on the investment is not guaranteed and loss of principal is possible.